Hi, my name is Raghu Sundaram. I'm the Dean of NYU Stern School of Business. And when I'm not thinking deeply about the future of business education, I'm listening to the Business School question. Hello, listeners. Welcome to a very special episode of the Business School question. On this episode, I speak to Max Johnson, who is the youngest brother of Boris Johnson, the new Prime Minister of the UK. Max completed an MBA at Tsinghua in Beijing, and it has changed his career trajectory. I spoke to Max a few weeks before his brother was named PM, and it was a fascinating and fun chat. We talked about why Max chose to do an MBA in China, his MBA experience at Tsinghua, his time at Goldman Sachs, what he's doing now, politics, Brexit, and his brother Boris too. I hope you enjoy it. So, Max, the idea is that we'll just um, talk a little bit about your life and your MBA experience at Tsinghua and, and how that sort of maybe changed the trajectory of your career. Um, from my understanding, back in 2006-07, you were finishing Oxford and, and looking at doing an, an MBA. So, just tell me why you decided to do an MBA um, quite soon after graduating from Oxford uh, and also, why China? Where did that passion for China come from? Okay, um, so so, the, so I was so I was always looking to do um, a postgraduate degree um, after after my after university, um, and um, actually, I was considering different trajectories. Um, I looked at. Um, I looked at coming to the U.S. and continuing my study of Russian. I was a, I was a Russian major at university. Um, but you see, I'd also been to China as a as a tourist. Um, the sort of the December before uh, the December of my final year, so around Christmas time of my final year at university, uh, I was traveling in in Russia, catching up with friends, and I decided to take the train across to Beijing, and so. When I was there, I visited the, the universities. Uh, they're in one part of town, and Tsinghua was one. Is one. Uh, there's, you know, Beida is the other famous one. And I inquired, you know, what are the postgraduate degrees that they that they have on offer that are suitable for international uh, students? And Beida currently, I think, has one with LSE, where you do one year in, in the UK and one year um, in China. So I, I was I was weighing up. Um, what to do next. I knew I wanted to do a postgraduate degree. I wanted that to actually to be in business. I came to I came to decide because I'd been an art student pretty much throughout GCSEs, A-levels, my undergraduate degree. I knew that I wanted to get into business and finance, but I really hadn't um, ever been taught, you know, the quote-unquote hard skills. I, 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 I had GCSE math, but yeah, that was really it. I mean, I, I didn't even have um, a textbook understanding of economics. So I think a number of things gripped me about doing an MBA. Um, one is I always thought that uh, it would be something I would do in later life. So there was a kind of, there was an opportunity cost, obviously, um, doing it later. And I thought, well, maybe I should, I could do it now. Um, I'm only 22, but I realized that I had a number of interesting work experiences. And actually, the requirement uh, from Tsinghua at that point in time um, wasn't so great. So I knew I could get in if I really put my mind to applying. And why China? Well, China in 2007 was 
I mean, is, but it was particularly then the topic of conversation. If you picked up a copy of the Financial Times, it was what is China doing? GDP growth, you know, was almost double digits. So I thought I need to get on this wave. Um, I do speak Russian, but, you know, politically Russia has been somewhat in the wilderness, um, whereas China, everybody wanted to understand China. I had a linguistic ability. I thought maybe I could learn the language, learn business at the same time. Uh, you know, this would be the this would be the, sort of the right place to position myself for a career, and that was pretty much as far as I was thinking. Um, and I, I like China, I like the culture. I actually knew nothing about it other than you know trips to Chinatown in London. That was pretty much the extent of my experience of, of the Far East uh, as a kid. I mean, if we went on trips abroad, it was to somewhere in Europe. I mean, it was definitely not to China. So it was a very alien place as well. Um, and culturally, there was a huge barrier that I knew I was going to have to overcome. But that in itself was, was a challenge. And I think it was, was quite exciting for me to to kind of set myself to, to overcoming. Um, yeah, so I think all of those reasons, really, I wanted an MBA, I wanted to experience China, I wanted to learn the language. Um, and I thought that doing it now could mean it would sort of turbocharge my my career. I suppose that was that was what I was thinking. And and it was pretty much just after finishing Oxford. So so you said you were twenty two and you started to do an MBA. Were, were you one of the youngest in the class? Yeah, I was. I was. There were there was only three three of us were twenty two. I mean, if if I add up my work experience up to that point in time, so I did a summer investment banking internship at Lazard in London. Uh, the summer after I finished Oxford, so I basically did my final exams, then did a 12-week internship at Lazard, and then got on a plane to China. So in terms of sort of formal um, internships that most recruiters would look at, okay, that was, you know, the internship. But then, okay, where's the two years of work experience? Well, I had had a year abroad um, as part of my four-year undergraduate degree. And it actually, in that year abroad, Okay, I'd, I'd worked. Um, I, I, I'd worked in, I'd set up my own um, trading business in Moscow. Um, and I'd been I'd acted as a volunteer in the Far East for an NGO um, looking after, you know, late, late Baikal ways. So work experience-wise, though, I was thin. But I think um, I was lucky in the sense that they hadn't ever had an application from a Brit to do this program. And um, I think the fact that I was a graduate from Oxford helped. And um, they certainly asked me sort of challenging questions about the lack of work experience. But in the end, I think it, it didn't count against me, whereas I think it would have counted against me if I applied for, a, you know, an MBA at Harvard or, or one of the, you know, one of the, um, one of the North American based uh, that makes sense. Um, so, so sort of pioneer for going to China. And so you said you're the first UK citizen to study an MBA at Tsinghua. It, 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 it's a statistic that no one's ever corrected me on. Um, the, you know, the school hasn't uh, certainly ever had anybody um, to do the program. Maybe there's some people have applied and then, and then got accepted, but then not gone. But certainly, I think I'm the only person to graduate um, from, from the UK. I mean, since then, they've had, I think, many more. 
Sure. Well, I'm, I'm not going to correct you on that, Max. Um, and <laughs> the um, and, and the program specifically, you mentioned the prestige of the program in Beijing. Is that what drew you to the program? Why, why did you choose this MBA program rather than one elsewhere uh, in China? Yeah. Well, exactly. So, so having having sort of had decided that I wanted I wanted to go to China for an MBA, you're right. There are there are a few others. At that time, there was Thebes there, and uh, there was one at Beidou. University, I think, called the BIMBA, um, the Beijing University International MBA program. But I, I sort of did my re- research, and from what I could work out, um, Be- Beijing University, Beida, and Tsinghua had the same sort of relationship and connotation as Oxford and Cambridge. Um, and Tsinghua was sort of more closely aligned to Cambridge in terms of it had, it had, it had turned out a sort of greater number of um, economists uh, within China. Um, you know, I, I knew, for example, that the, that the School of Economics and Management at Tsinghua um, also had very close relationships with the Chinese government. So, I mean, Zhu Rongji was the school dean, I think, for 14 or 15 years, and then he became, the, the I think, the fifth uh, premier of China. So I, I thought that by studying at one of the best universities in China, albeit at a graduate level, I would, uh, you know, I would mingle with, potentially the future leaders in Chinese business and in the Chinese economy, plus also Beijing you know, being the capital of China. Um, you know, culturally, that was attractive because I wanted to learn Mandarin. And in Shanghai, um, they do speak Mandarin, but they also they also speak Shanghainese. So I was sort of cognizant that I wanted to really immerse myself um, in the language. Um, and there were other reasons too. I mean, the advisory board of, um, I mean, now it's got, I think, guys like, Mark Zuckerberg is on the advisory board of the Tsinghua School of Economics and Management. I, Goldman Sachs was closely affiliated. And INSEAD, I think, still does have a joint MBA program with Tsinghua. So I thought for all of those reasons, it sort of pointed towards, you know, Tsinghua being a, a very uh, reputable university and, and program. And the structure of the program itself, uh, it's four semesters across two years. The third semester... They, they operate an exchange program, and I actually was one of the lucky students that was able to go on exchange um, as a Tsinghua you know, MBA student to the Stern School of Business in New York. So I got this uh, incredible opportunity to actually spend four months in New York in the second half of 2008, which is when the you know, global financial crisis hit. So that was, that was also a kind of fascinating experience. And, and Tsinghua, I think, was quite unique in the exchange program that, that, that it offered. So, yeah, so I think that's why that's why I picked um, that's why I picked Tsinghua. Uh, and this was alongside your experience at MIT Sloan, or was that a part of it back then? Yes, yeah, so MIT Sloan provided um, professors who would come every semester, and they would teach a sort of specialist subject, um, and I've been given a certificate in management by MIT, and I think affiliate alumni status. Okay, I see, I see. But you didn't visit MIT at the time, um, but you went to NYU instead. And on firsts, uh, you mentioned first UK citizen to uh, study an MBA at Tsinghua. Um, Also, first UK citizen to run a North Korean marathon, is is that right? And when did you do that? And uh, what, what was that like? Did you get to see or experience anything beyond the marathon while you were there? Yeah, yes, actually, you're right about that. Um, so 
in 2014, I think, North Korea opened up Pyongyang to foreign, amateur foreign runners uh, for, 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 the, for this marathon. And I, I, saw, I saw an advert, and so I went, and I joined, you know, you're part of a tour group. Um, they keep you quite closely monitored. You're not exactly allowed to wander around, but you know, they let you run around the, the city. Um, actually, architecturally, it's quite, it's quite beautiful. And then you finish the marathon inside the stadium with sort of 70,000 people uh, clapping, you, clapping you on. And I'm, I'm by no means a, a specialist runner, but um, it was certainly quite motivating to have um, 70,000 people sort of yeah. cheering me on. <laughs> Even if uh, pre-organized. Um, and uh, what time did you get? Uh, so I, I was just under the, uh, the, the, the four-hour um, limit, which was good, because, it, because anything over the four-hour limit, I think you weren't allowed to, uh, you know, I think they closed the gates of the stadium. So. Okay, great stuff. And so just we jumped around a bit there, but going back to, to the program, your experience on the NBA at yeah. Singwa, um, what, what really stands out from you, if you could pick one or two things as your biggest highlights from that experience? And maybe even you mentioned the culture shock. Um, how was that moving to China at a relatively young age and learning Mandarin? What, what really stands out about your impressions of China and the MBA program at that time? Um, so I think absolutely the, the, the culture shock. Although I had been in countries where I didn't speak the language, it was always as a tourist. I was there on holiday and you know, I, I would leave after a few, a few days. But here I was effectively with a one-way ticket. Um, you know, I was met at Beijing airport by my buddy. I had a, a buddy who was one of, the, one of my Chinese classmates. He you know, met me um, at the airport. And I, I remember feeling almost uh, helpless because I didn't speak a word of the language. And there were, there were very few people who did and very few you know, bus drivers or taxi drivers or people in the street. Um, that I could communicate with, and that was that was almost quite uh, isolating, actually. Obviously, I had my friends on the program within the campus, but just wanting to get things done, like open a bank account, set up a mobile phone, um, you know, pay my electricity bill, you know, understand why you know the water had had switched off, and who would I speak to, you know, about getting hot water, things like that, actually. You know, you just take for granted um, in when you're at university in the UK, obviously. You can, so, so the language barrier was huge, and that just made me really want to knuckle down. And I took private lessons. Um, I had to, I did sort of I, I taught English, and then for an hour, and then someone would teach me uh, Chinese. So that was um, so, so the cultural barrier was, was was well, the language was part of it. I mean, Chinese culture. Actually, I love the, the culture, so I, I quickly kind of assimilated. To that, it's a very warm and, and friendly culture, and that suits actually MBA life because a lot of the work is in groups. Um, you know, naturally the Chinese are a little bit shyer than than me or than the Westerners on the program. So quite often I find uh, I was asked to do the presenting, uh, and but they were very happy to uh, to do all the sort of financial modeling if it was the finance course or uh, you know all the charts or you know some of the an analytical data. Um, and, and actually, that I think suited our strength quite quite nicely. So um, I found I was often in demand when there were, whenever there was a sort of public presentation um, that, that needed to be given. Um, 
but on, on but on the on the downside, I suppose you know in classes sometimes classmates would be a little bit reticent to be challenged, and um, you know we 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 actively you know we as sort of the more Western educators classmates would actively like to be challenged by the by the professor and be cold called, um, and so I was teased that I was. Um, but I, I noticed that you know some of the Chinese classmates didn't didn't enjoy that experience um, experience so much. Mm, we'll, um, we'll come back to those those cultural differences because, because I guess that's been helpful in what you do today. Um, but just just to get an idea of of your past, so you graduated in two thousand nine. Obviously, heat of the financial crisis. Um, then you got a job at Wogan Resources in China, and then eventually Goldman Sachs in Hong Kong. Do, do you think that career path would have been possible without the MBA? How, how did the program actually help you take that step to start working in China and then Hong Kong? So I have, to, I have thought about this. So what I always wanted to do, um, so I received the offer from Lazard to do investment banking in London. Then I went off to China. I had the option to go back to Lazard as a first-year analyst in 2009 when I graduated. But you see, having just got the MBA, I thought it would, it would have been not putting it to the best possible use. Um, and having now learned the language and spent the two years learning the culture, I wanted to build on, build on that. Okay. But like, as you said, doing banking in 2009 was, you know, virtually unheard of in terms of, you know, headcounts were all slashed and budgets were slashed and people were, were not hiring. So, I wanted to come to Hong Kong, and actually, if I if I could have found a first year analyst job in Hong Kong, I would have done that. Um, as it was, there weren't those opportunities, so I thought let's consolidate and build on the base of, of China that I've now got. I found a job with this British um, commodity trading company as their business development manager in China, which was great because it gave me a small team of Chinese traders to manage, so managerial experience, but then also exposure to China, and I got to travel a lot around. So I was able to build on my understanding of business in China, which, which, which was great, because in 2012, I think, the markets picked up and an opportunity came up at Goldman Sachs, and I was able to come in, I think, as a third-year analyst. So I joined in January as a third-year analyst, then did six months, and then was promoted to an associate. So I sort of worked it out that if I, um, if I hadn't done the MBA and if I'd started at Lazard, I would have already been an associate by that point, um, but not in Hong Kong, in London. And now having done the MBA in China, um, I was then able, I suppose, to then justify why they would hire me in Hong Kong because of all the China background and I could speak the language. And I was, okay, one year below my peers who then all then went off to do their MBA. So actually, um, so that was, I think, uh, I wouldn't have been able to get the job in Hong Kong without having had the, the China experience. Yeah. Uh, and so eventually you left Goldman Sachs. When was that and, and why? What happened there? What, was that just a decision to follow something new? Yeah, it was. I mean, I left, to, I left at the end of 2016, so I did four years. So I did my, my six months as an analyst and my three years as, a, as an investment banking uh, associate uh, working on M&A uh, in, and out of, in and out of China and Hong Kong. I was in a sector team uh, in real estate and then I was uh, in a kind of general, general M&A pool. 
I mean, really, the decision I think was based on. I think I wanted to try something a little more, a little more niche and um, a little more nimble. So, um, so I had this idea to, well, take the contacts that I had, uh, a lot of which um, are interested in the UK and in, in in doing business in the UK. And similarly, I had I had British companies who were reaching out to me um, from my time when I was in, I was vice chairman of something called the British Chamber of Commerce in. China for about three years, and then in my time in Hong Kong, they were still contacting me, asking for how do we how do we get into China? How can we sell our products and services in China? So I so I established what is called NJ Capital um, in 2017. It's part investment and advisory. Uh, on the in the investment side, I take small small stakes uh, in, for example, a British company that wants to sell its books, let's say, um, in China. And I just announced a, a, a deal with a Chinese state-owned uh, publishing company to print and distribute uh, the company's books in China. The, the, the company's called Wonderbly. Um, and this was one of the Department of, of Trade and Investments 10 announced deals at the most recent uh, EFD Economic Financial Dialogue Forum in, uh, in June in London that the Chancellor Philip Hammond um, has been promoting um, because it's essentially very important for UK-China relations that they have UK-China business. So, um, so I'm now essentially operating in that sector. So MG Capital does part investments. I'll take a small stake in the business. And then on the advisory side, I will help them find uh, strategic alliances in China or in Asia, um, joint venture partners, or just generally come on as a as a retained consultant and you know assist them with business development. Um, yes, yeah, so I've taken sort of three 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 four clients for the past uh, two years, and you're quite pleased that the deal was announced two months ago was my first deal. So it was actually it was actually been quite a hard slog, but um, it's um, it's going it's going good. Okay, brilliant. So, so all these businesses that I read about, Platinum Fitness, Intrigue Pictures, these are you're all involved in all of these through um, MJ Capital. Yes, exactly. So, so Platinum Fitness, I started uh, end of twenty uh, end of twenty seventeen, um, which was a small twenty four hour fitness club chain in the Philippines. Uh, it was, you know, it's obviously there was a CEO. I came on board more as a CFO. I took a minority stake, um, and I've, I've sold that, sold down my stake to a uh, to a Filipino family about three months ago. So, I'm, so I've now exited um, Platinum Fitness. Um, in the Intrigue Pictures is, well, I actually started Intrigue Pictures because um, I, I started to get a bit of work um, as an extra in um, in films that were coming out to. Hong Kong. So I, I was like a sort of five second uh, extra in the Transformers 4 film oh. that came to Hong Kong. Um, <laughs> I'll have to look at that. Thought, well, <laughs> I thought, um, no, I, I'm not an actor, but on the financing point, there's a lot of Chinese capital that's interested in, in moving into Hollywood. You saw Wanda, uh, which is a big Chinese uh, company, uh, bought a stake in, in a legendary entertainment. You're seeing increasing numbers of Chinese talent in Hollywood, um, and that's because the films are financed by Chinese. Uh, no, so Intrigue Pictures is a it's a boutique. Um, you know, we 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 are looking for 
um, we have projects and we're looking for um, Chinese investors who want to sponsor sort of independent, low budget, but, but commercially viable um, projects rather than sort of the blockbuster type um, budget. So um, more around the sort of five or $10 million um, production budget range. And that is with a, a, the partner in that business. Again, I'm just a minority in, in cheap pictures. The partner of that business is a LA-based um, independent producer that I've known uh, for for many years called called Andrea Chung. But my my main business that I'm focused on on a kind of daily basis is my is my advisory business. Yeah, and it sounds like it's it's a lot more freedom to, to explore different avenues, um, which is exciting. Um, I must ask you, Max, that there is an article on the Times that talks about how you were a victim of the cost-cutting purge at Goldman Sachs. Is, is that is that accurate as well? Did that come into it? Yeah, totally, totally accurate. Other than I wouldn't have said uh, I wouldn't have said victim. I would say uh, I would say beneficiary um, because. Um, you know, at, at the time, you know, obviously, you know, we all know that the that, that cuts, that cuts happen and people, uh, people get laid off and that's just the nature of investment banking. But, but actually, um, it really opened up a, an opportunity and a door that, um, that I was very happy to go through because, as you say, I've now got the opportunity and the kind of scope where I'm not beholden to, you know, compliance departments and, uh, you know, line managers who, have, have issues with, you know, I think if you're employed at one of these banks, you really are employed at one of these banks. And there's not really much else, not much room for outside directorships or um, other interests. So, no, I, I mean, I would say that I was sort of liberated by that phenomenon. Um, yeah. And we talked about the cultural experience that you got on the MBA. And doing business in China is, is very different to doing business in the West, in the UK. Um, how does that MBA experience, do you reflect on it now when you're dealing with sort of UK-China relations and conducting business between the two? Um, what are those big differences and, and are there learnings from your MBA that you still reflect on and use today? Yes, so I think one of the key aspects I've learned um, dealing with the Chinese is when it comes to negotiation and the, well, two, 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 I think, factors that influence negotiation and they are face, um, sort of giving face or um, definitely not uh, leading the idea of your counterparty to lose face. So face is one. And then the power of the back channel communication. So um, I think, and within all of that, if you can, is, is, to, is to be mindful who is the decision maker. And quite often you'll go into a room um, with, you know, Chinese business people sitting across from you. Uh, and it's actually not obvious at all who the decision maker is. And you might, ex you know, expend a lot of efforts talking with one person, but, you know, but actually that's all being passed back to the other person who's actually the one who makes the decision. So the first, first off, once you've established who, you, who you, the counterparty really is and who the decision maker is, face is obviously very important. Um, even if you've negotiated down to a price where actually the Chinese are still taking something away from it, if you've done it in a way that's been too aggressive or that's 
you know, seemed like you've been arrogant or condescending, you may have inadvertently caused them to lose faith, in which case they won't feel happy about the deal. So you've got to be extremely, it's not saying you can't be firm or you can't be strong um, minded or strong willed, but you've also got to do so in a sort of charming way uh, as, as well. So that, so that would stay. And then back channel is very important because the principals, because they're so worried about making the other lose face, a lot of the points will be pre-agreed in the back channels by the working teams. Um, and so when you actually go to the face-to-face meeting, generally speaking, there's not anything that's going to be taking anyone, in by, anyone by surprise. So I think it's very important that you also establish a route in that's not the sort of public route, and that's the private route. And I think that probably works in politics, but I certainly found that it works in, in business. And did I learn that from the MBA program? Um, well, I mean, I think I, think I learned the importance of, of, of um, having, you know, bilateral multi-stakeholder buy-in with decisions. For example, when on group assignments, you know, if one person in the group was not happy with the direction of where the project was going, you know, inevitably at some point or other, you know, the, their contribution, you know, would actually not be up to the standard that you were hoping for and that would bring everybody's grade down. So I think it did teach me it did teach me the importance of kind of really making sure that you've got everybody uh, on, on side and working, working, you know, I think motivated by the same, uh, with the same goal in mind. And in terms of network, do, do you still have contacts from the MBA experience that, that you're still in touch with today? Yes, and that, and, and that is key. And I wrote a piece for the Financial Times when I graduated about the networking. Um, I think I, I think it was called It's the Networking That Counts. Um, obviously, there's a lot more that counts than just the networking. But at the, I mean, at the time, I, I meant it. And I, and I, and I still do have uh, a very interesting note from Tsinghua. So I've got the note within China from not just the people from my course, but the people that I met in China at the time. Uh, and they're not just Chinese, by the way. I mean, they are, they are the Brits or the, the foreigners within the diplomatic service or running the multinational corporations in China. Then, of course, there are the Chinese. But then there are also, there's an overseas Chinese category, um, sons and daughters of uh, prominent Asian business people, so Southeast Asian, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, the Philippines, who sent their children closer to home, recognizing the importance of China. I'm the godfather of a very sweet little boy whose father is one of the um, one of the heirs to one of Thailand's you know, largest property companies, and I think um, that. Uh, that, you know, that was because I was at Tsinghua, and I think that you know, to network from any MBA is going to have benefits, of course. That's that's what you spent your time doing. But in this part of the world, it's it's definitely helped. And in meetings, when I say to Chinese that I was at Tsinghua, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a general appreciation of the of the time that I've put into to China and spending and spending in China. That not, brand, not to say that that gets me ahead, but I, but, I, but there's a sort of recognition. That, that brand recognition is, is big. And so you're doing, uh, you've had a lot of experience in China, uh, working between China and the UK, based in Hong Kong. Um, 
What, what does the future hold? You're from a very politically active family. Um, do you have any intention of getting into politics? I, I, am, I am from a very, very, from a very politically um, active family, and I suppose um, I, I do have an idea uh, one day to get into politics, but I would like for now to, to, to I think, cut my teeth in business and do my own thing um, and kind of prove myself to myself um, that I can survive and thrive outside of the political sphere of, you know, of the UK and outside of, uh, no, I mean, I would love to live in the UK. Um, I'd love to do business in the UK, but I think, you know, for now I'm very much focused on just sort of being my own person. Sure. And just in terms of politics, how, how does the situation in Hong Kong at the moment, has that impacted your work at all, sort of working with UK-China business, or, or has it not um, affected the business sphere as yet? So I think, the, I think that Hong Kong is an extremely resilient place, and the the benefits of Hong Kong as a business destination are the fact that it is so close to China um, and you know, its proximity obviously uh, hasn't changed. Um, it's, you know, the rule of law is still paramount and I think, you know, the court system, the judicial system, uh, it's still a very friendly place for entrepreneurs to, uh, to come and to set up businesses. And I think that the what's going on in the political front I think we'll settle down um, you know, as, as, time, as time goes on. Uh, it certainly hasn't affected me. Um, it obviously has affected a lot of other people in Hong Kong, and um, but, but I think I think in time it will sort itself out. Uh, and so uh, we have uh, Brexit as well in the UK, and you're working with UK-China business. Um, do, do you see Brexit as, as an opportunity for UK-China business? Or, or, I mean, do you think it's a, a good thing generally? Yeah, I do. I, I do. Because I think, I think if, if Brexit can be done um, you know, successfully, then you see at the moment the Chinese, uh, they look at Europe and... Um, with the UK being part of Europe, and they just they do they do trade deals with the EU, um, and uh, I think on a on a business to business level, um, you know there's, there's 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 a case of that happening as well. But I think if there's a successful Brexit, China will have to deal with the UK, you know, on a bilateral basis. And I think you know businesses businesses already do look at the UK because London and you know particularly the cities of Birmingham and Manchester and Liverpool have already attracted a lot of investment in sectors such as what well, property. Um, I mean, you've had football, but other than that, there's been a kind of, there's been a line drawn now on that as, a, as an investment sector. But I, but I think the UK for the Chinese still has a very strong brand image uh, and a kind of allure and attractiveness. So, I mean, yes, there's uncertainty at the moment, um, property prices, um, the pound is, is, is destabilized, but I think once Brexit happens, there'll be a sort of you know flurry of activity coming to the UK. Uh, and but but why is Brexit a good thing for UK-China relations? You know what what does it add that 
we didn't already have in the European Union. You talk about that bilateral aspect. Well, I, okay, I think I think Brexit is a good thing if you assume that Brexit is going to happen. Then a quick Brexit is the best thing for UK-China relations. I mean, UK-China business. I mean, the problem at the moment is is the lack of Brexit. So it's is it happening or is it not happening? And and it's actually that is causing the biggest um, damage to you know to businesses because they just don't know is it happening or not. And if it's happening, then what kind of Brexit is it going to be? So so I would agree with you actually that if Brexit was not happening at all. Um, I think the Chinese interest in the UK would be as strong as I just said it's going to be after Brexit. It's just at the moment, um, at the moment, everyone's kind of taking a let's wait and see uh, approach. And, and is Brexit something just fundamentally you're, you believe in? Uh, that's take, take China out of it? So, I mean, per- personally, I, I, I leave my politics at the door and uh, you know as a businessman I am reactive to the to the politics that that our leaders you know that our leaders put, you know govern the system with um, if Brexit is the path that the UK is going down then as a businessman I would say let's get it done quickly so we can all move on um, and if it's not happening well then let's let's cancel it all together it's not for me to um, it's not for me to decide, but it's from speaking from the perspective of business, everyone's looking for a, a quick resolution. Okay, and I'm sure you, you were expecting my next question. Um, it's, it, it's up to our leaders to, to decide, and our leader may well be um, your brother, Boris. Uh, so what was it like, what is it like having Boris as a brother, and do you, and, and if so, why do you think he'd make a good PM? So, um, so I don't, you know, I don't comment on, um, you know, family, but, but speaking as why do I think, uh, you know, he would be a, uh, a good VM because I think he's a, he's a brilliant, he's a brilliant, uh, clever, um, guy who's had a stellar career, um, on the front line of conservative party politics. Um, you know, he's won two elections in London, um, people thought against the odds. Um, so I think he's shown throughout his political career and, you know, before you know, demonstrated leadership and the ability to govern. And I think he does um, electrify uh, the Tory the Tory members. So I mean I, I hope that they will they will they will vote for him, but it's, it's the race is not over yet. Yeah, absolutely. So so you back Boris? I absolutely back Boris. Absolutely. Yes, I do. You see, I would always back family. Um, you know, I would put family before, uh, you know, before, before, before anything. So, um, you know. Okay. So, so the Green, so Green Party as well. Oh, I know. I, I, I like the Green Party very much. I think they've got some, they've got some excellent policies. Um, but in terms of just supporting my siblings achieve their career ambitions, you know, I mean, that's kind of the overriding motivation as a, as a member of the family. As I said, I mean, if I was an outsider, I would vote for him for all the reasons that I've given, you know, his leadership and his ability to win elections, um, you know, etc., etc.